You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show. And hello if you're listening to the show as a podcast at some other time of the day. A big thank you to Phoebe Squared for the past three hours of music on maps. Phoebe will be back next Monday at 4pm to no doubt do it all again. In fact, Phoebe will be broadcasting live from, from the forum as part of... What, what, what's the official language for it? You're involved, Alex. Help me out. <laughs> M- MIF's live broadcast. Triple R's live broadcast. I thought you'd MIF. forgotten the name of MIF and I was going to be quite worried about that. <laughs> I went blank. The place that you work, Thomas. The, the place where I do apparently work. I've got a very high Tetris score. I'm very pleased with the work I, I do with him. Um, <laughs> my name is Thomas Cordwell. I am joined tonight by Alexandra Helen Nicholas and guest host Emma Wood. Good evening to you both. Emma hello, Westwood, hello. rather. <laughs> you made me... Truncated. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't, I didn't it's mean It's a sign that. of affection. <laughs> it is. I was thinking Edward. I meant Emma Westwood. <laughs> oh my God. And I that is this is only getting better. <laughs> <laughs> Now, on tonight's show, we are going to be journeying down the Amazon into Colombia's heart of darkness in Embrace of the Serpent, and then Whales, Swords and Orphans in the Japanese animated feature The Boy and the Beast. But first, Love and Friendship is the new film by American filmmaker Whit Stillman, who is best known for Metropolitan, Barcelona and The Last Days of Disco, his 1990s thematic trilogy about privileged American 20-somethings navigating the 1980s. Now, given Stillman's previous focus on social conventions among the upper class and dialogue-heavy films, Love and Friendship feels like a good fit for him. It is an adaptation of an early Jane Austen novella titled Lady Susan. Expanding on Austen's story while maintaining the core story and characters, Love and Friendship is a comedy of manners about a widowed woman attempting to marry herself and her daughter off into money. It stars Kate Beckinsale in the lead role as Lady Susan with a large supporting cast that includes Chloe Sevigny and Australian actor Xavier Samuel. I would I would read the shit out of Jane Austen's Lazy Susan. Yeah. That's extraordinary. I was hoping I got away no, with that. No, that I'd be around so the table. That. That's what I'd That's, do. <laughs> I reckon I'm one of the very, very few people that um, comes to this more excited about Stillman than Austen. I'm not a hater. I think, obviously, Austen is, you know... Um, at the peak of her craft, um, but I well, she I, wasn't with this yeah. short story. This I've, is a very I've early. Never, I've never had any kind story. of connection personally with Jane Austen's work, so that was to me actually that was the least interesting or the least enticing thing about this project. But I was really um, fascinated to see what Stillman would do with the material, mm-hmm. um, and I was enthralled. I was really, really enthralled by this film because it reminded me a lot more than I. Th- thought it would adaptation is always interesting i mean in a whole bunch of ways is i guess an understatement but it's you know how much when you've got dueling authors you know so you've got you've got a director of stillman's experience who has such a strong signature um like we were talking about a few weeks ago with um scorsese and edith wharton with age of innocence you know when you have these two very strong authorial presences coming together it almost feels like a tug of war like which one's going to you know will they kind of mesh together or will it will it be a bit of a tension between oh, one of them struggling to speak over the other and i thought this was a perfect harmony yeah. i thought that this felt very oh, stillman yeah. and very austin you exactly know? i'm with you 
Mm. I'm with you on that. I think Thomas said it, uh, took the words right out of my mouth at the beginning, which is this, they just feel like a perfect match to me. And um, what I really liked about it was, and I am a huge Austin fan, I remember reading Pride and Prejudice because I had to at school and thinking, this is going to be awful and just falling in love with it and then reading everything and I'm called Emma. I mean, I have to love (laughs) Jane Austen. Um, But I'm named after Emma Peel, I just like to say, Diana Rigg. That's pretty hot. Yeah, yeah. Ten, I give that a nine. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. Um, but uh, he, you know, pardon the pun, but wit gets her wit. I mean, he. I, I think this is probably the the filmmaker that has most understood her sense of humour. I mean, to think that. Whit Stillman understands Jane Austen, but he does. You know, he really does, and the humour comes out so beautifully. And I think Kate. Beckinsale is probably the best I've ever seen her. I would have definitely, I was going to say exactly the same yeah. thing. I think this is the film that I've clicked with her. Yes. Because I think of her as the woman from, um, was it the un- Underworld? Is Underworld, exactly. Directed by a husband, I yeah. believe. Yeah. 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 Oh, awful films, Les blocked from memory. Len somebody. Len Wiseman. And when I think of her, I think of those films. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I do too. And I think this, because she was kind of, she was a villain really in this, and um, but she was just so unflappable. She was quite a unique character and she didn't hardly raise a heartbeat when she got in the stickiest of situations and she managed to outmanoeuvre just through her her good grace, her words, her charm and have everyone wrapped around her finger and then everyone not <laughs> as well. <laughs> That's a great plot but synopsis. It just, yeah, it just works so beautifully and uh, she, she, she worked it. I mean, that great line, facts are horrid things, you know, that, <laughs> that she says at some stage. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really is a, a good synergy, I think. Oh, I can't, I just use that word seriously. Um, <laughs> That's very problematic, Thomas. <laughs> oh, oh, it's, it's, <laughs> um, wow, you can tell I've been in an office for too long. Um, <laughs> It's a really good pairing. And I've recently discovered that Whit Stillman has pretty much all his life been a huge Jane Austen fan. Like, he adores her work. He takes it very seriously. And, and you know, he was making films in the 90s that were very much like modern versions of her films. I Metropolitan mean, was 89. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah. And that is a very loose kind of reimagining of Mansfield Park. You know what? Watching this, I was thinking... Yep. This actually reminded me a lot of Metropolitan in particular. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And... I agree. Yeah. I didn't know that he was a long-term Austin fan, yeah, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, work everything he's done. Even yeah. as early as Metropolitan, the way that he builds... He he constructs dialogue like action film directors put together action scene images. Yep. The movement and energy and propulsion yep. that you get yep. in, in his dialogue is just extraordinary, and you see that in Metropolitan. This reminded me more, the, more of Metropolitan than I expected. Mm. Yeah, I mean... When I, when I heard about this, I thought this this really does make make a lot of sense. And then the more I read about his reverence for Austin, the more sense it made. And and the idea behind this is Lady Susan, which I've I've read is is not a great work. It's no, still it's, rough. it's a, 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 a piece of epistemol- not epistemological. Pistolary. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's written as a series yeah. of letters. Yeah. There's a and, name and for that. The punctuation yeah. is annoying. They use ambersands instead mm-hmm. of and, which is really difficult to read. And, and weird capitalizations of nouns. So it's like you're reading German or or an angry nerd on the internet who doesn't know how to capitalise properly. And it, it, it's a frustrating read. And, and he has said it's, it's a difficult novella to penetrate. Like, it's before she came into her own. But he loved the characters and the story, so he wanted to transform it into a film. I think about midway through the film, I, I realised I've never been 
that huge of a Jane Austen fan either. I'm one of these people, and I think it was bad association at the time when, when well, all the stuff about her peaked in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. I just got fed up with it. it yep. And um, <gasps> oh wow. And looking back, I don't think I was ever blown away by any of his films either. I've enjoyed all his films, but I didn't fall in love with any of them. And I had a similar vibe from this. And I think the problem is, he and he said he doesn't enjoy making films. I think he's a frustrated novelist. Because what I have done is I've read his novelisation of this I'm story. I'm fascinated oh, yes. by that. Which is splendid. Is it really? And I enjoyed it far more than the film, far more than the original source. Maybe the problem is I'd read the story twice before seeing the and film. Struggled yeah. So yep. by the time I got to the film, I thought, oh, here we go again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm mean, curious to know what you think. I thought the acting wasn't uniformly good. I thought Kate Beckenstahl was great, but I found Chloe Sevigny looked like she was asleep. I was really she did yeah. a bit, and, and she, considering she's sort of uh, the Stillman stable, yeah, you know, it was a yeah. She she didn't pop as much. Even the title of the film, I think, the love and the friendship. The friendship really is emph- is emphasising the relationship between Seveny and Beckinsale's characters, and because these wasn't two have been spark. friends before, and yeah. they've been in they've been yeah. they were both in Last Days of Disco, is yeah. that right? Yeah, um, which I just adored. And there's a spark in that film. Um, I mean, there's a lot of sparks in this film too. But no, I felt the same that she just wasn't as sort of sparky as perhaps she's been before. Although I think some of the casting definitely, some of the other casting really deserve. Can we mention my my boy? The, yeah, of course you can. What's Go. You've got his Tom name Bennett. down. Tom, Tom Bennett. Bennett like yeah, just who, who does the steal most, the film. It's yeah. his film. I want yeah. a spin-off of this particular character. I want him to have his own it was blockbuster franchise. Like the, the film is worth seeing just for this one character <laughs> who, who doesn't, who realises the joy in his discovery that the word Churchill is actually one single word and not <laughs> church and a hill. The, 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 the length, like the distance that this film gets in that gag is just... Gorgeous. Right. Yeah. And uh, Samuel, uh, Xavier was Samuel. Uh, I, yeah, I found him a little flat, and he's an actor I usually really like. Well, I'm really excited about the Miff opening night film that is, is him. The, um, yes, he's got the lead in that, the uh, Otto, Bloom, Otto Bloom, the death and life of mm-hmm. Otto Bloom, and he's splendid in that. Um, he was in a great Australian horror film called Road Road Train, I think it was called. Um, that was sort of it, kind of came and went. That I thought he was fantastic. He was in a good film called Newcastle, which I kind of came and went without a trace. The Love Ones. He was in the yeah, Love, the love yeah. Ones. And of I, think, yeah. I think he had something to do with Twilight, one of the Twilight films. Didn't yeah, he? yeah, he's in two or three of the Twilight yeah, films. Yeah, he's as an well. interesting. Yeah. I think he's a really fascinating. I think actor, that, I'm, I'm liking watching him do kind of branch out a bit and do yeah. this more interesting work. I'm really enjoying. In, in his him. defense, he he was playing the the pretty boy bland character. He, he does just, play one of the yeah. most unforgiving characters in the film. Exactly. There's not much to work with. Exactly, sure. and he's also it, it's funny because they all dump on the Tom Bennett character, but he was probably the the stupidest character of the of the film, the Xavier Samuel character. Um, uh, character. So I think that he played it to his best ability, let's put it that way. I did like how the nastiness of this film really creeps up on you. Like you realise oh, just yeah. how diabolical Lady Susan is. And I don't think you get the full impact of that until quite near to the end. And that I really, I really relished. Yeah. Um, and, and also, uh, there's, there's this other love interest who's mainly referred to it at the film, you know, this Lord M- Mannering. <laughs> yeah. and, and you only get a glimpse, you only really get a glimpse of him right towards the end and it's the most gorgeous kind of pout and flick of the hair at the camera I, I did burst out laughing at that moment <laughs> I 
I'm really fascinated. I wish I could remember the the name of um, novels that are written like letters. There's a there's a name for it. I feel like a ninny for not being able to there's remember people it. People screaming in their radio. <laughs> yeah, just right using it. Yeah. Epistolary. 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 Yep, that's it. That's it. That's it. It's like cork. If you say it too much, your head goes funny. Carrie is the other really big famous one that I think of in novels that were written as a series of letters or documents and that are turned into a kind of narrative feature, um, mm. which I know it's I'm probably the first person to talk about <laughs> love and friendship and carry, but I'm always fascinated in terms of adaptation about how you go about doing that. And I loved, um, I think Carrie's amazing. I yeah. think it goes about that. In Dracula's really... one of the most famous ones. Of course. Ones, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah. mm. I'm on fire tonight, people. Um, <laughs> but I find it really fascinating. They incorporate it... the letter writing into yeah, the film. Yeah. yeah, I love how in this, how it does the same thing and in, in love and friendship, how it uses text. Um, and it's it's a kind of, it has, it became quite gimmicky, I think, in the late sort of, uh, sort of 2009-ish kind of era with the the appearance of, you know, people texting on their phone and the messages would appear on screen and things like that. That became quite gimmicky, but I think that this film uses that idea in a really different, interesting way and it, it, I just found it thoroughly appealing. It does. And that beautiful letter-reading scene with uh, where James Fleet's character, just the wife's, read it to me, read it to me, and how the, the male subjectivity or what he chooses to read out to her and, uh, and how they have that little to and fro together is really gorgeous. And what is Gemma, Gemma Redgrave? Another Redgrave. Mm, another Redgrave. That was yes. <laughs> yep. That was, look, a fantastic scene. And that, yeah. I mean, that, I think what I really appreciate having read now <laughs> the original novella and the, and the novelisation is how well he incorporated Austen's intent into this film. So all this stuff is stuff that gets referred to in passing that he's, he's enhanced. And, and watching the film, I, I, I struggled to differentiate between Stillman's dialogue and Austen's dialogue, and that's a real credit. It Absolutely. just doesn't personally ring my bells, but a huge amount of admiration for, for you know, all involved. Yeah. 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 I loved this. I liked it a lot I more than too. I thought I would, actually. Um, I think I was like you. They're just the, you know, Jane Austen adaptation, the three words that kind of make me a little standoffish. Mm, um, mm. But I just, I just thought this was a joy. The humour surprised me. That's what I just liked. crackling. Mm. Very good. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Embrace of the Serpent. It opens this Thursday, as we just heard. It's the highly acclaimed Colombian film that premiered last year in the director's fortnight section at the Cannes Film Festival. It was also nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at this year's Academy Awards. Now, there are two intertwining stories in this film, both of which involve a journey through the Amazon and both feature a shaman named Kara Makate, who is the sole survivor of his tribe. The stories are set over 30 years apart and they were both inspired, but very loosely inspired, by the real-life journals of two foreign scientist explorers who travelled with the shaman to find a rare plant. The first, a German eth in 1909 and the second an American botanist in 1940. The mix of striking and black and white cinematography, the way the physical journey mirrors the character's psychological journey, the scenes depicting psychedelic hallucinations as well as the themes and imagery concerning exploitation, colonialism and religious missions have seen Embrace of the Serpent compared to Miguel Gomez's Taboo, Jim Jamusha's Dead Man, Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and at least half a dozen Werner Herzog films. <laughs> have I missed anything? I, um, 
and it's still a unique film. Oh my god! I, <laughs> yes, it, Apocalypto. Yep. It could, I too. It could be naive, but when I watch a film, I think I even if it's something that I don't think I'm particularly going to like, I come in with a vague glimmer of hope that I'm going to see something new. Like, just show me something that I don't know. Show me part of the world or an angle of something. Tell me something I don't know. Show me something new. Show me, show me something fresh. It can be small. It doesn't have to be big. And this film just satisfied that desire so deeply, like, just, just in such an extraordinarily powerful way. I was just – I fell into this movie I was just subsumed yep. by it. it yeah, we talk it, about all those films that we can see in it. This was yet. This is like exactly you said, it. And I, I, I was really thinking about this as I was watching the film, and and afterwards, in that all of my points of reference, or most of my points of reference, were to Western cinema because it's obviously what I'm the most familiar with, and obviously Herzog is the main one. So I started off okay. So that was my you know, the Herzog in the Jungle films. And um, after I'd finished watching the film, I had a sudden realisation that the film, particularly in terms of its cinematography, but also its narrative, it reminds me a lot. It's almost like a post-colonial reply to Ben Wheatley's A Field in England. A Field in England? Is that what it's called? That's the one. I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of that. But then I realised that these... These are my points of references that I'm bringing to this film, and that that dialogue or that tension is precisely what's going on internally in the film. This tension between cultures, um, which brings that habit, I think, especially for film critics, to to bring that kind of those points of reference in. That the film is almost like a kind of self sourcing pudding. Yeah, and yeah, it's already exactly. challenging your your instinct mm-hmm. to do that as a as a as a uh, as a Western viewer, mm-hmm. um, which was so strong. Like, how do you do that in such a embracing engaging way without being didactic without being preachy i just found this intoxicating the director has talked about this he spent something like three and a half years in the amazon uh speaking to the inhabitants many of them direct descendants of indigenous cultures and trying to understand their storytelling and he actually said he he had to pull back a bit because it was just going to be too alien to put it into a western film he wanted the film to be accessible but there's still a lot of ideas that that permeate and and re- reading this interview made me even think of things like Ten Canoes, how yep. how yep. He, he he talked about, you know, in these, these Indigenous storytelling traditions, the spirit world takes just as privileged a position as the human world and, and the animal world and, and magic and hallucinations and dreams are all interwoven. And I think this film does that in a way that that they suit you into it really nicely. It becomes a very dreamlike experience. And I saw this film quite, <laughs> really, under horrible circumstances, I was feeling really quite ill and quite feverish myself. And I adored the film. It's almost a perfect headspace for it. <laughs> it was kind of both the, the best and the worst yeah. way to watch it because it gets intense. And I remember thinking this would be a real visual pleasure for me if I wasn't feeling so nauseous right now. Mm, um, but it still blew my mind. That and intensity. I haven't shaken this film off. After seeing it, it stayed and, and right with me. And you saw it in a um, home environment, did you? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Off a screener. Um. <laughs> well, the thing is, it, uh, I think this is a cinema film. This is very much, this is a point um, I'm trying to say. It's that very it's, cinematic. Yeah. 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 Oh, I was yeah. very sick and I saw it under extreme circumstances out of desperation. But yeah, I, I'm yeah. dying to see this in the cinema now because that's where it belongs. The yeah. intensity yeah. of this film, and it, they're, they're nothing alike, but the experience of it. Um, on, a, on a kind of emotional and sensory level, the last point of reference that I can think of for me that a film smacked me in the face this hard was The Tribe that we looked at last year, the Ukrainian f- film w- uh, with a deaf cast. 
um, that doesn't have subtitles. Um, and that film is a very different, very, very different kind of film. But the emotional impact or the yeah. impact that, that that film had on me, it just made me sit quite quite literally just bolt upright. And they're, they're both beautiful films that take you out of your comfort zone. and Because and, yeah, it's communicating a story in a way that we're not used to seeing. Just show me something new. Yeah. Make, me, yeah. Think, yeah. make yeah. me think differently about the world. Yep. And, and I, I, I mean, I was thinking again, and I, I said this a few weeks ago when we looked at... Um, Oh, the beautiful Turkish film about the sisters. Mustang. Mustang. I remember watching Mustang and being outraged, like this was nominated for the Oscar. <laughs> How did this not win? And then I thought the same thing watching Embrace the Serpent. <laughs> yes. This is an outrage. How did this not win? And of course, they were all up against Son of Son Saul. Son of Saul, which is extraordinary. Which is like, okay, game over. Like, Son of, <laughs> yeah. just, give, just give Son of Saul all the awards that have ever existed. Give it, give it all the logies. Like, Hell of a good year, though, for foreign language films. I need to Academy. sit down and look at the other films that were nominated for Best Foreign Film. Um, because those three alone are, th- I mean, they're just three of the best films that I've seen in years. Yeah, just for sure. Extraordinary movies. Something. Like, yeah, that's saying something. I think um, it, it's interesting, though, because it was just right from the first shot. Uh, I was in there. I mean, you know, it didn't... It, 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 there was just something about it. I mean, him... Um, I think the actor was Niblio Torres, his name was, who was just standing there by the bank of the river and he's just like this incredibly commanding presence uh, and you're like, I-, I can't take my eyes off this. This is amazing. And the black and white, I found that really um, unusual. I think that... Because uh, he didn't... I mean, the Amazon is beautiful and it's really played up uh, th- that it is beautiful even with the black and white and it's 35 mil as well. He shot it on 35 mil. Um, Gee, you can tell when it's black yeah. and white. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. It looks That's so when the difference good. between film and digital is so apparent. When exactly. it's that really high contrast yeah. black and white. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was very highly saturated the, at, at certain times. It, but it was like he didn't... He didn't sort of... I don't know. I don't think language is... Languish is the right word. But he didn't languish on the beauty of the... Amazon. Do you know what I mean? It was, it. I thought the no, same he thing. didn't. Yeah. Like it's, not, it's not a travelogue. No, it was. It's taken for granted. You, we all know that the Amazon's beautiful, um, and he was here he, in this story to tell something. Else. I think that's a really crucial point because it feeds into that um, that subjectivity of yeah. the main character. It's filmed like it's his home yeah, because it's yeah. his home. We're not getting it from the perspective yeah. of the colonial visitors exactly. to the space. We're getting it from somebody who lives there. Yes, um, yes. And his performance is just... I mean, we're talking about it as this very kind of intense, extraordinary film. I think this has one of the best laughs I've ever heard in a movie. Like, it's <laughs> just a, he gives his belly laugh. I can't even remember what he's laughing at, but he's on a boat, and at one point That's he just, right. just throws his head back and just, just gives one of the best laughs I've ever heard in cinema. Just yeah. an extraordinary you're, you're, talk, you're talking about the actor who played the shaman as a young man? Yes. 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 Yeah, the story yeah. is they did a big casting session in, in the Amazon and he was refusing to be photographed and they said, why is that? And he just said, I'm, I'm not interested unless you're going to give me the, the lead in the film and make me a star. <laughs> and they met with him and just went, yeah, yeah. This, this, this is our guy, look at him. Yeah, yeah he, it's amazing. He's, he's got an amazing presence, incredibly photogenic. Yeah, I did read up, um, like you did as well, Thomas, because I was intrigued after seeing it. I thought, why did they go for this black and white? And he said, um, Gera, the director, said that something about he wanted to capture the daguerreotype film that would have oh, the photographs beautiful. from the And there's explorer. actually one in... They, they have a photograph yeah. in there. There's a whole really beautiful conversation yeah. about the photograph. And oh. he found that that was really important. So that was more the um, the MO behind doing that. And I thought... and uh, Because it was, seemed so important to the film, for some reason, this black and white seemed so important. 
would have been a very different film. That's another comparison point to Ten Canoes because the black and white sequences in Ten yeah. Canoes were designed to specifically evoke very early photography done by yeah, an English uh, settler in mm. Australia. So yeah, it's presenting it through the guise of these original colonialists, although very sympathetic colonialists. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. In a film that is, it, it doesn't hide its agenda. It's very critical of of the way these environments and and tribes have been obliterated by in, in, in specifically in this film by the rubber trade yeah um, and there's a real sense of mourning to it i think yeah like just, yeah it, just in terms of personal identity the film doesn't play with horror culture. does it, it it's yep. more about the, the sorrow at what has been lost real sadness and yeah. real anger mm. Yeah, I think yes, it comes out, yes, but there, never, is a, there is a seething anger and under never, the surface. But never fetishised, never a kind of no. didactic or preachy mm. or... You don't feel like you're getting a history lesson at any stage. It's just something, you know, you, you witness a character in pain. Something, um, yeah, something the director said I found really interesting is the film has been compared to Apocalypse now, especially the, the sequence with the, the crazy messiahs that we get towards the end of the film where they come across a Catholic settlement where a self-claimed messiah is there encouraging his followers to commit suicide if, they, if, they, if he doesn't approve what they do. And it, it does remind you of Joseph Conrad or, or you know, Colonel yeah. Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, and um, and it, f- one thing is that's based on something that really did happen. Although the director has said it was more extreme in real life, but the other really interesting comparison he made from his film to Apocalypse Now is Apocalypse Now is his Western idea of going into the jungle sends you mad, where he said this film the idea was when mad people go into the jungle it is brought out of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge difference, and I think the film is very successful in conveying yep. that. And that's yep. such a fascinating um, point of reference in relation to Herzog and Kinski, not just the <laughs> films themselves, but to, you know, My Best Fiend, yeah, and the relationship exactly. between those two men that, of course, is quite famous. It's almost more famous than the films it themselves. It is, it is. Um, the, yeah, the idea of going mad in the jungle, I think. Um, going tropo, Herzog, it's a thing. Herzog could always put a kind of copyright out on that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. The Boy and the Beast is a 2015 Japanese animated film that was released theatrically in Australia in March, but we're catching up with it now as it's been recently released on home entertainment. It's the new film by Mamoru Hosoda, whose previous three films, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, Summer Wars and Wolf Children, I believe all overall highly regarded science fiction and fantasy films with a focus on young people. Now, evoking the Harry Potter series, The Boy and the Beast features Wren, an orphaned nine-year-old boy who stumbles from our regular human world into the Beast Kingdom, where he becomes the disciple of Kamatetsu, a grumpy bear-like beast who is training for a fight to determine who will be the next lord of Beast Kingdom. Both Boy and Beast are stubborn and short-tempered, but they are also both lonely and resilient. The film gets increasingly complex as it leaps forward in time and introduces more supporting characters, but at its heart, I reckon this is a story about parenting. Good call. Mm. Discuss. Discuss. (laughs) What do you two think? um, I've mentioned this in the past. I, I come with a great deal of anxiety to Japanese animation because I just don't have the cultural knowledge, I think, um, that a lot of other people have. 
to people really who experience are into it this. Are really into yeah, it and they're yeah, really exactly. well versed exactly. and knowledgeable. And I know so that there's so much nuance going on. Let's apologise in advance to those people <laughs> if, not, if you don't get this exactly right. It's almost right. like my, my, my kind of routine <laughs> is that I have to yeah. kind of go through this and um, I, because I know that there's so much that these these films are so densely packed with these cultural reference uh, references and I don't. I don't know whether I'm picking them up, so I always wonder if I'm missing out. And, and I think, in a way, the fact that, that so often, you know, a film like this is, you know, is a great example in that it's about uh, children and the experience of children or young people. It, it almost is a trick to make us think that there's something simple going on when I know that, that these aren't simple stories and they're, they're not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so coming in with that approach, the first half hour of this film had me absolutely gripped. Um, the opening sequences, in particular. Um, where we meet our uh, child protagonist um, and, he, and he makes this sort of crossover into this different realm. Um, the very opening moments where are these fire dancing figures. Uh, yeah. Just extraordinary cinema. I mean, the Great my brain was just, just mm. going bananas. I mean, it was reminding me of, you know, classical Hollywood and um, beautiful, uh, I mean, a lot of Disney. I mean, there, were, there was real Fantasia kind of energy to this. There was so much going on just in terms of film history. Um, in these in these opening moments and and uh, the emotional intensity I think of the setup of this film was quite um, just really uh, it was a good hook it was a good hook from that point on I don't know whether it was the film on me but I something felt a little dithery and I'm I'm very comfortable to say it could have just been me dithering and that I was so swept away by the by the build up that it, I uh, my experience of this film wasn't maintained. Mm-hmm. But I just may have peaked too high. I made my expectations might have been shooting a bit too high up, yeah. um, because I certainly don't think it's flawed or anything like that. But I think that the the promise from the setup of this film didn't wasn't maintained for me. I um, I will say straight off. I don't know about you guys, but I just blindly press play and I watched it with English uh, language, um, and I thought. Halfway through, I thought, oh, I don't know, with the voice acting with this, I'm not sure whether it's quite working. So I had another look at it, only a part portion of it, but after I finished watching it in English language, and I think that it's a better film to watch with the um, subtitling and the Japanese voice actors. Um, I watched it, it with the subs because I, I played, yeah. I did the same thing. I think it defaults to it the defaults uh, to American English. voice actors. Yeah. And it's quite that quite thick SoCal Absolutely, which is a little a little radical, dude. Like it was a bit because it's wow. very Japanese, and it sort of it sort of clashes with the Japanese sensibility of it. But when when I say very Japanese, and I'm talking from a perspective like you, Alex, this is not my my thing as such. It's not my world. But I found it very accessible. So oh, I yeah, think when you definitely. sometimes when you say Japanese, people think oh you're talking about Akira or something like that, where uh, certain people will get lost in there, a certain audience. Um, but this was a, a really sweet, easy to watch story, and it, it, it kind of it, it managed to have a nice, straight storytelling narrative with the the magical stuff as well. Um, you were talking about it being uh, Thomas about being uh, about parenting. I thought it was really a lot. It was um, really felt like a monster movie for me, and having done a lot of. Uh, writing on monster movies and research into monster Your movies. Book. You did a book on monster movies. I did, yeah. I did. Um, I interviewed Adam Simon for that, who was um, uh, did Carnosaur for Roger Corman, and he wrote recently The Haunting in Connecticut. And he um, had a really great um, 
a great theory theory around why we still we love horror movies as ad, um, or monster movies as adults and why we often sympathize with the monster and he said as a child you are the monster you are the the different thing the thing that's mutant amongst in the adult world and i got such a strong sense of that in this film right from the beginning because he's like the little guy around in in the real world in the real world where he's not fitting in and having trouble he's um they're like a forest of legs around him and things like that and it's only when he kind of meets the actual monsters and the beasts that he he fits in so i I really like that i felt that that was a a strong theme that came out through the film look absolutely that's something you know tim burton talks about a lot as well being inspired by all monster movies because they were the ultimate outsider they were the freaks on the fringe of society and a lot of those classic original monster films i I don't need to tell both of you this but you know the, the monsters are often misunderstood they're not inherently evil they're placed in a situation where they lash out so they're very sympathetic creatures and and in this film our beast is even He's a beast as an outsider, even in the beast kingdom, because he's so kind of grumpy and short-tempered. And I, I really admired the way this film shaped a fundamentally dislikable character at first, and without softening him or doing any cheesy redemption moments, we just come came to love him for who he is. And it reminded me a little bit of the dynamic we saw in um, Hunt for the Wilder People, actually, how the, how the main character... That's a great, great point of rough, reference. Yeah. But he ever so slightly softens, and you realise there's this incredible humanity in him with the way he protects the, the younger character. I just thought of that then. I think that works really oh, nicely. I think that's mm. amazing. And mm. the thing that's so extraordinary about that is that I think both of these films really... Uh, coming back to your point about parenting, that, these are, that this is a film yes, about parenting... I'll expand on that, yeah. Um, parents can be flawed. Yes, of course. You can still yeah. you can still have a strong family relationship. You can still have a strong relationship with your parent, and that's I think a really big part of growing up is that discovery that your parents aren't perfect. Yeah, because but when you're little, you assume that they are, and and then as you get older, your parents become human beings. You know, and that, and that's precisely what both of those films are about. In that you can have a parent figure who isn't necessarily perfect. And you can have a parent figure who's not necessarily your biological parents. And I think that's the really big theme in in this film, that different people can become the parent parental figure in that they're looking out for you, that they're a mentor to, to, to shape you. And, and they can shape you badly simply through neglect. You know, there's another character we find out later in the film who's really gone wrong, not because his parental figure is a bad person or monster, but because they've been preoccupied and they haven't looked for warning signs that where he's gone bad. The, the scene is that really clinched it for me is there's a couple of supporting characters who one, one day, in one scene towards the end of the film, just kind of sit down and say, you know, the kid, kid turned out okay. And I think some of that's to do with us. Like, we were part of this. And <laughs> it's a whole, good. you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And I thought yep. that was a really beautiful sense of, of community and how, yeah, young people are shaped by the world they're, they're grown up in and, and you know the, the way we, we lead by example or show them affection has a huge impact that we yeah we should we should never underestimate mm, mm, i agree and i think that um just on a uh t- going away from the thematic stuff but in terms of the visual look of the film and the animation style um I wasn't. Sh- it had so many textures. It was actually a lot of different styles in there. The, that, that opening 
20 minutes or so, the yeah. textures in that sequence. I mean, you've got the were surveillance that, cameras. And were there the, actually photographic shots beautiful. in there? There were some that looked like... Some they looked were, photorealistic. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's that's true or not, but there was almost like... Some um, back projection as well, I think. Yeah, so yeah. Some beautiful glowing really, light effects. Yeah, yeah. 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 And really it's, extraordinarily constructed from that. I mean, I didn't exactly. feel that it maintained that pull throughout the film. Maybe I was just okay. too engrossed with the form of it. Um, I mean, I certainly think that the narrative maintained throughout. Yeah, um, yeah. But I was just really struck by how great it looked in those these precise textures that you're talking about. Yeah, And exactly. the combination of textures, just amazing. Yeah, very surprising. I, I, I think that... Um I, I don't know whether I, I didn't pick up on it, but I, I wanted to put it out to you guys. Um, Moby Dick was, in the terms of the significance of Moby Dick, because I have never read Moby Dick, um, was it just literally because um, it was going to have a um, an aesthetic? I don't want to give it away, you know it's what I'm the, talking about. I got the impression it's the idea that the, the, the beast that you're in opposition with is a reflection of yourself. Okay, yeah, all right. This idea right. Of, of mirrored selves. And, you know, Ren has various mirrored selves in this film, actually, that he has to deal with in different ways. Yeah, yeah, he does. No, I, I was just interested because Moby Dick being such a Western text as well that uh, a Japanese film would pick up on that as, uh, you know, a central... It's quite heavy-handed, to too, and it's referencing to it. I it is, like very it's literally much like a copy of the book in the screen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. And then Moby Dick's a story of, you know, conquering nature, conquering the Being beast. away from home. And, yeah, but, but, yeah, but I think this film is sort of the inverse of that. It's not about conquering the beast at all, it's working with them in harmony and yeah, all yeah. that sort of thing. Actually, a lot of yeah. that ties in nicely with the film we discussed earlier, Embrace of the Serpent as well, that mirrored self and kind of, yeah, fractured identity which you, you get over the two timelines. It actually works in with the uh, Whit Stillman in a funny way as well. In what way? <laughs> <laughs> the, performance, the performance of identities. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, thinking of, right. of la- I'm thinking of Lazy Susan. Well, the Lazy way Susan, you know, in terms of, in, in, in terms of the performance, you know, the, the idea of reputation preceding you and do you yeah. live up to yes, that? The, or, the social know, the kind self of, versus the, the real self. The hypocrisy of, of that kind of social setting. Have and we just tied all three we've films oh together? It's been a long time since we've done that. I think there was um, very much, well, the sort of moral of the story was, uh, you know, humans turn out okay, but they turn evil, sort of. Yeah. Uh, don't thing. eat raw eggs, I think, was also a theme. And don't eat raw eggs, yeah, but um, which is, we could say that's also a theme in um, Embrace definitely, of the Serpent. Definitely a theme, in, a visual <laughs> motif in Embrace the Serpent. Probably worth actually flagging Embrace the Serpent is um, if you're frightened of snakes and close-up footage of snakes, you probably need to know that before you go in. Uh, that's yeah. <laughs> a, that could be a point. I don't know anyone that. Is it oh, a trigger warning for snake oh footage? God, close up snake footage. <laughs> Just keep telling yourself it's only a metaphor. <laughs> it's only it's a motif. <laughs> it's only symbolism. <laughs> You're listening to the trail end of Plato's Cave. We've been discussing Lover and Friendship. It's on general release, courtesy of Transmission Films. Embrace of the Serpent will open this Thursday, courtesy of Palace Films. And The Boy and the Beast is available on home entertainment courtesy of Man Man Entertainment. 
My name's Thomas Cordwell. Tonight, I've been doing a show with Alexandra Heller, Nicholas, and I'll get it right this time, Emma Westwood. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Thanks for dropping by again, Emma. My pleasure. I, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's been a fantastic experience being here with you guys. Are you coming in next week to talk to Cerise and I about some myth things? I am. I, I don't know. I, I won't have my father figure, Thomas, here. <laughs> I'll just feel a little unhinged. I'll be running around myth You'll be in the frightfully important. Thomas oh, will be yes. in the trenches and the front line of the myth wall while we sit back and, <laughs> and judge him. Yeah, basically. <laughs> critique all the films I program. And it's like, what kind of idiot scheduled that? An, an all-lady cave. Yeah. It'll be great. It'll be good. It's been a while since that we've done that, so that should be a great couple of shows. I'm sorry to be missing it. I will be listening in. We've got to get out of here because coming up next on Triple R, you're in, you're in tune for more love, friendship and serpent embracing on love and or general with somebody who's both a boy and a beast, Jason Moore, <laughs> but from both of us on Plato's Cave. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.